food sacrificed to idols. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us nearer to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a, consci with, with a weak conscience sees you, who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin... I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, all. Let me first of all tell you about an experience that I had when I was a working lad. Uh, we had a German who came to join uh, the office in Reading. Um, and he, uh, when he arrived, he showed me a sheet of paper which he said, this is my way to survive in England. I have it here. And I'm going to tell you about it because he said... I was warned that when English people say something, they may mean something entirely different. <laughs> and so he showed me this sheet which has got three columns in it. What the British say, what the British mean, what you will understand. So let's deal with some of these. First of all, the British say, I hear what you say. 
What the British mean is I disagree and do not want to discuss it further. <laughs> what others understand, he accepts my point of view. <laughs> With the greatest respect, I think you're an idiot. <laughs> He's listening to me. I'll bear it in mind. I've forgotten it already. <laughs> he will probably do it. I almost agree. I don't agree at all. He's not far from agreement. I only have a few minor comments. Please write, rewrite this completely. He's found a few typos. And with that, my German friend learns to cope with the differences that people feed into the words that they use. Last week, Sophie tackled 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and she gave it the sort of uh, uh, the undertitle dealing uh, with distraction. And if you wanted an undertitle for chapter 8, it's dealing with difference. And just as my German colleague had to navigate the difference between what people say and how they use words, so the Corinthian Christians had to deal with the different interpretations of how to live a fully Christian life in first century Corinth. And today's passage covers another of those issues which clearly uh, was brought by the people of Corinth in their letter to Paul. He starts now about uh, uh, eating meat offered to idols. It's clear that it was an issue for them. And what we're going to do today is to look at that particular issue, which I don't think is an issue for most of us today. Do we eat meat that has been offered to some uh, uh, other god? We're going to deal with the issue, so we see it in context, and then we're going to look at some of the principles that Paul gives us as to how to deal uh, with those sorts of uh, difficult dilemmas that we face in our modern worlds. So let's look at the issue first of all. Should the Corinthian Christians eat meat that's been slaughtered in accordance with pagan rituals? What's the backstory to this? Well, we need to remember that in uh, the ancient world, atheism hadn't yet been invented. And so everybody believed in some supernatural being. And in order to uh, live comfortably with that supernatural being, they needed to do certain things. And in Corinth, at one time it's reckoned, there were at least 12 pagan temples some of them very large-scale ones. It's said that the temple of uh, Aphrodite had a thousand priestesses, which is not the same as a thousand clergy. The priestesses were effectively prostitutes, and people would come to Corinth and they would worship there. We have a picture uh, of um, uh, the um, uh, archaeological evidence of where things were in Corinth. You may not be able to see the detail, but the important thing to remember is that these pagan temples were not out of town. 
You didn't have to drive to them. They were at the centre of the civic life of the community. They were a central feature. There's no divide between sacred and secular. The other interesting thing is they didn't have any abattoirs. They didn't have abattoirs because all the meat that was eaten in Corinth had first of all gone through a temple process. So abattoirs, as such as they were, were effectively just an addendum, an outhouse to one or other particular temples. And so if you wanted to eat meat, you went to the butchers, which was always getting its food from the temples because not all the meat that was slaughtered was offered uh, sacrificially. Or you would go to a civic event, which was very often actually in a temple uh, of one of these pagan gods. Indeed, Paul actually refers to that in verse 10 of our reading. He says, what about seeing somebody eating meat in an idol's temple? So it was very clearly part and parcel of everyday life in Corinth. So how should the Christians deal with this? That was the question, and that's the question which they quite reasonably put to Paul to get some sort of guidance on it. Well, it seems that some reason that since other gods we now know, as Christians, they said, don't exist, what's done in their name has absolutely no power at all. And so therefore, I can eat meat that's been apparently offered to a non-existent idol without any compromise to my faith. There were others who took a different view. Still believers, still core members of the Corinthian community of Christians, who felt that the old beliefs that they had still held some sway over them, and that to eat meat that had gone through this process would undermine their new faith. Now, what is Paul's advice? Well, I have to say to you, Paul's advice is not very clear. I wish it were. He could have ducked the issue entirely by referring to the Council of Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 15, where the whole issue of what Christians should do if they come from a non-Jewish background was dealt with. And at that Council of Jerusalem, which was particularly about circumcision, we'll come to that in a moment, uh, uh, they, he's, uh, the, the, the letter that goes from the Christian leaders is, <clears throat> you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual Im immorality. And indeed in this chapter, in verse 12, he seems to be saying much the same. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. And yet, in the early part of the chapter, verses 4 to 6, he seems to be saying something different. Eat anything sold in the meat market <coughs> without raising questions of conscience. This is from chapter 10, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks' time probably. Um, For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? So I hope that's all clear to you. <laughs> and the lack of clarity may be something which we come to later. Now, it's not an issue for us about eating meat offered to idols, but there are some principles here which I think we as a church can apply to the differences that genuine and sincere Christians hold one with another. I must say, there aren't many where I think they are such that if I do something, my other brother's uh, faith will be uh, demolished, caused to stumble. But it can cause division and it can cause offence. And I think we should look at this passage with that in mind, that not all Christians interpret what it means to be a Christian in the same way. Now, <clears throat> what we could do is to look at some of the issues which <clears throat> affect the church in total and, and some of the issues that are in the national headlines today, for example, uh, about uh, uh, sanctioning uh, gay uh, marriages in the church and the like. Or it could be about an interpretation of what it means to take communion or the Mass or Eucharist, for example. Or it could be about um, the uh, charismatic gifts and how they are used in the church. And we could deal with those, but I'm not going to today because I'd like us to ground this in us, St. Paul's, here and now. And the issues may not seem nearly as, um, uh, as universal or important uh, as those ones that I've just mentioned, but they're important for us in our life as Christians. Now, having said that, we are truly blessed here at St. Paul's by having um, a genuine unity. I don't think there are huge issues, and we're not, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're not the, um, uh, like many other churches where there are divisions that are going on within an actual congregation. So I don't want to emphasize that there is disunity here, but I bet there could be more unity and more togetherness if we followed some of the principles that we're going to be looking at. So, as I deal with it, there are six um, uh, points that we're going to deal with, but as I deal with those, just think for a moment, is this church perfect for you? And by perfect for you, I mean, if you were in charge, would you be doing everything exactly the same way as is being done at the moment? Or are there things that you'd prefer to be different? Are you one of those who feels it's slightly awkward that there's coffee at the back of the church as opposed to somewhere else? Are you somebody who, for example, feels that the length of service or the length of sermon is not how you would want it to be? Are there people that you think who are in leadership that are your favourites 
and those that you come to because you're obedient, but you would really rather change? Are there people in the congregation that you give a slightly wide berth to because you either know you disagree with them about things or you just don't like their personality? Now, these principles are not going to change natural inclination, not going to make you, you know, love the most opposite person that there is in the same way as you love somebody that you feel natural with too. But I think that our unity as a church can be enhanced if we try to break down some of those differences that um, uh, would keep us apart. And I think in so doing, we can give a model to the world around us about how to live with difference and not feel like it's a tablet that we have to swallow. So let's go through these six points, <clears throat> most of which you can find directly in this passage, but I'm not suggesting that all of them are directly there. The first is, work out what right means for you. Paul says in another letter to the Philippians, he said, work out your own salvation. And I think this is one of the reasons, perhaps, why Paul doesn't give you know, a black and white answer about meat offered to idols. Because he wants each Christian to work through, in their particular situation, what that means. And if we could just ask the priest, we could ask Tom, what do we do about this and the like, our thinking, which is part of our God-given gift, would be unneeded. So that's why a straightforward instruction, I think, was not what he wanted to give to them, but to prayerfully consider their own situations. So that's the first principle. Second principle is ask, is what divides me from others critical to the faith? So critical that we can't live in fellowship. As I said, there were clearly some issues in the early church where the difference between genuine Christians of both sides had to have a yes-no answer. And the example that is obvious is the example of circumcision. The Council of Jerusalem met because there were Jewish Christians who said the Gentile Christians, only the males of course, had to be circumcised. And the council said no. And why did they say no? Because to allow both would be to compromise a fundamental truth of the Christian faith, which is that it is faith in Jesus and what he did that counts. And if you have to do something in addition to that, then that somehow compromises that fundamental truth. But since God prizes unity so highly, we have to ask if some of the issues that divide Christians today are really of that same order. And I'm not going to go into them and give my opinion about them, but we do need to think, is this a separating issue? Does it compromise the core of our belief in Jesus? Now we come to point three. And if point, point three is a bit like a mountain because we get into the key issue here, and that is, let love define us. Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love is the starting point. The differences are not the starting point. 
if my relationship with someone here is defined by what I believe and what they believe, we don't have any unity together. If what defines my relationship with somebody else is love, then differences can be coped with. So that involves getting closer to other people and not the ones necessarily that we're magnetically attracted to. Over many years at St. Paul's, I've been placed in house groups alongside people I would never have chosen. Not now. Just... <laughs> but there are people who, from the outside, I would not really want to get too intimate with, if you know what I mean. And by being with them week by week, you see there's more to them than the differences that we may have, personality differences, theological differences, whatever. But you can't love at a distance. You have to get close. And closeness shows that difference is not the most important thing if love is there. Another example of somebody that you will probably not know, but somebody that Pam and I found you know, difficult in, the, uh, in uh, the church family. And a meal with them, inviting them over, was a great breakthrough. Again, a word of warning, if you're invited by somebody to a lunch next week, it's not because they find you difficult. <laughs> but working at those differences, rather than uh, going away from them, gives us the opportunity to show that love and difference can live side by side. Point four, discuss the differences. I think we can reasonably assume that the Corinthian Christians debated the rights and wrongs. That's why they put it in a letter to Paul, you know, hey, you know, we, we don't, can't work this one out. We need some help from outside. They asked Paul's advice. They didn't withdraw into their respective echo chambers, not talking to those who don't agree with them. And interestingly, Paul didn't say, look, the answer about this is, you, we really need uh, one Corinthian church that eats meat and the other that doesn't. He didn't say, go apart. But they needed to be able to talk about those differences, to voice them. Not just to voice them to other people that they knew would agree with them, but with the people that perhaps they disagree with. But done in love, rather than to try and get their point of view uh, taken uh, uh, for red. Nowadays, unfortunately, it's more common that when differences arise, people walk away and find another church, a church more to their liking. And the church becomes one of a range of supermarkets, and if the product no longer meets our needs, we shop elsewhere. Now, I know there are people here who have been members of other churches, and I don't want to in any way criticize, because it's not an easy thing if you're living under a ministry where you just don't feel that God is speaking to you. But I just offer this word of caution, only use that as a very last resort, if you feel your own faith is being undermined by the experience that you're having in church. 
Work at it. We don't want a group of churches which have got one particular point of view and a group of churches of another. Because the church is not a shop. It's a family. And you can't walk away from family. And it is worth working through. Okay, point five is be sensitive to other people's sensitivities. Paul makes much of our need to be aware of the weaker brother. I do sometimes wonder whether or not he's got his tongue in cheek when he refers to them as the weaker brother. This is because the stronger brothers have knowledge. And if you remember, the Corinthian church was one where knowledge was all important. And uh, he may just have his tongue in cheek when he's saying weaker and stronger. But he says, take into account the feelings of others. And it may on occasion stop us doing what we personally would be quite comfortable with doing. As Paul says in chapter 10, he says, uh, am I going to go for the lowest common denominator? Something that doesn't offend anybody? The answer is no. But on the other hand, there's sometimes when we can flaunt our differences and not take account of what the other person's feelings are, even if we don't agree with them. I mean, we, you could say we're modelling that in our own church, where we have a 9 o'clock service and a 10.30 service. We don't do it because we want two different churches, and indeed there aren't. But for some people, uh, following a liturgical service with a degree of predictable uh, structure is a way that enhances their relationship with God. And for others, you who are here, you have, uh, have a different point of view. You live with the difference that you cope with the fact that other people may view things differently. Which leads to the very last point. Respect those who differ. Be true to yourself, but respect the others as having a genuinely held point of view and have come to a different conclusion. In this way, we as Christians can model living peaceably with difference in an increasingly polarized world. We can show people that we're not all the same, that we have come to different conclusions about things, but love keeps us together. And by having love and difference, we are stronger than if we have love of only those that agree with us. So our diversity makes us stronger, not weaker, Living in love and in hope and fellowship acts as a megaphone for what we believe. And when people come in and see people of difference loving together, then that's living the gospel. It's a living example. It doesn't need words. It has a unifying power of love. So maybe before we move on with the rest of the service, you might uh, uh, like to ask God, is there anything in my priorities that drives me apart from people who also love you in a genuine way. Is there anything that I suppress which I should talk to other people about to have a deeper understanding? Is there anyone who I find more difficult 
to deal with and therefore try to avoid. Do I know how other people feel about things so I can be sensitive to those feelings without compromising my integrity? Is there any way in which our church can grow in love and unity and therefore become a brighter herald of the gospel in our community? Amen.